Well, we've been in a series of messages for several weeks called Resolute. And uh, we are finding that, that we live in some pretty unsettling times, and people all around us are, are frankly scared to death, scared of everything and everyone. But we've seen that God's people need not be fearful. That God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That God's people can actually be resolute. And resolute means steady, bold, faithful, courageous, resolved, marked with a firm determination. That's resolute. And uh, so we're going to close out this series of messages this morning by considering the courage of our convictions. You've probably heard that phrase before, the courage of your convictions. She has the courage of her convictions. A conviction is a, a, a core value. It is a belief that you hold so closely, so dearly, that it actually controls and defines your life no matter the consequences and no matter the circumstances. That's a conviction. It's not a preference, it's not just a belief, but a conviction that controls your life. Well, this morning, I want us to consider five biblical convictions. That when these are your convictions, when these five biblical truths inform your life and guide your life, control your life, you can be encouraged, inspired to be resolved, uh, to have that resolute, that steadiness and a boldness and a faithfulness. So if you have your bulletin, there's a listening guide on the back panel. Let's identify these five biblical convictions and their implications for our lives. I'm going to go ahead and give you the first one, and then we're going to start with Isaiah 40. But the first conviction is this, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Sovereign just means God is, God is in control. God reigns. He rules. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. God is sovereign. Now, we're going to start in Isaiah 40. Uh, we're not going to stay here all morning. We're going to actually look at a number of passages. Uh, we're not doing, doing an exposition of Isaiah 40. We've done that in other settings. But rather, this is just going to inform uh, these convictions as we go along. So Isaiah chapter 40, and listen to verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span? That's, that's a, a, hand width, a hand width. Who has calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Down in verse 22. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary." What I want you to hear, first of all, in these verses is that God is sovereign over creation. God reigns. God rules. He, is ultimate, he has ultimate authority, power, and control. And God is sovereign over creation. He is the maker of heaven and earth. We heard it say right there in Isaiah 40 that He, he created the ends of the world. He, he created the world just by the authority of His command. Let there be, and there was. 
He destroyed the world with a flood. He can make it rain. He can make it not rain. He divided the Red Sea. He stopped up the Jordan River. He made the sun stand still. He can send plagues. He can perform miracles. God is sovereign over creation. Not only is he sovereign over creation, he is also sovereign over nations and national leaders. He's sovereign over nations and national leaders. In verse 15, he says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Verse 17, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. God is sovereign over the nations, whether it's the Roman Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, or if it's Israel or Judah or Russia or China or even the United States of America. The nations are like a drop in the bucket to the Lord. They are less than nothing before him. He is sovereign over national leaders. In, in Daniel 2.21, it says that he removes kings and establishes kings. In Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, and he directs it wherever he wishes. Uh, in Jeremiah 18, God showed Jeremiah, God is like a potter, and nations are like a lump of clay in the potter's hands and on the potter's wheel. And God can decide to build up a nation, or he can decide to destroy a nation and tear it down. God is sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over national leaders. He can use nations to further his sovereign purposes. As you read the Bible, you'll, you'll see God time after time. He can use one nation as an instrument of his judgment against another nation. He is the God of history. He is sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over creation. He's sovereign over the nations. Thirdly, he's sovereign over individuals. He is sovereign over individuals. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And I, before you were born, I consecrated you, and I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. God's sovereign over individuals. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and I consecrated you. In Psalm 139, the psalmist acknowledges this in Psalm 139, 16. He says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. When I was, before I was, you know, when I was in my mama's womb, you saw my unformed substance. And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. You, you knew my life before I even had a life. God is sovereign over individuals. In Job, we, we talked about Job here a few weeks ago. Job chapter 1, Job lost everything in one terrible day. He lost his family, he lost his wealth all in one day, and we see Job grieve, we see Job worship, and he says, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. There's the sovereignty of God in his life. God gave but God also takes away. God is sovereign over individuals. Now, let me give you two implications. Here's, the, here's how that fleshes out in our lives. Two implications of this conviction that, that God is sovereign. One, my life is in God's hands. When you know, when you believe, when, when this is a conviction, not just a, a, a convenient belief, but when this is a conviction that informs and guides and controls your life, it means that my life is in God's hands. One, He is my creator. He gave me life, and He can take my life. We heard that in, in Jeremiah. We heard it in Psalms as well. He is my creator. Not only is He my creator, 
He is my Savior. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God is your Savior. He saved you from sin and death and hell. And as Savior, your life is in His hands. And He is my Father in heaven. He is my heavenly Father. I am His child. And He knows what I need before I even ask Him. We'll come back around to that here in a little bit. But He is my heavenly Father. My life is in His hands. As Creator, Savior, Father. My life is in God's hands. Here's, here's the next implication. Again, this is that one conviction, God is sovereign. Here's the next implication. All my trials are allowed by God and have a purpose. Since God is sovereign over my life, He's my Creator, my, my Father, my Savior, my life is in God's hands, and that means that all my trials, trials, tribulations, problems, heartaches, disappointments, the good times, the bad times, all my trials are allowed by God, and God's going to use them to fulfill a purpose. So whatever comes into my life, if it doesn't come from God, it at least had to get by God. If God did not engineer it, He allowed it. And He allowed it for a purpose. And He's going to use that trial, that problem, that situation in my life for my benefit, ultimately, and for His glory in the end. Now, there are a lot of things that God may cause or allow that we don't understand. If God is good, why did He ever let that happen to me? And why should that, you know, why a good God would never let that? And there are some things that, frankly, we will not understand this side of eternity. But here's the conviction. God is sovereign. My life is in His hands. And all my trials are allowed by God, if not engineered by God, and they serve a purpose. God's going to use them for a purpose in my life and for His glory. So there's the first conviction. Is that your conviction? Do you hold that conviction? God is sovereign. When you know that, when you own that, that'll help you be resolute. No matter what's going on around you, no matter what goes on, no matter the consequences or the circumstances, that'll give you courage. That'll help, help you be steady and bold and faithful and resolute no matter what. God is sovereign. Here's the next one. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That is the definitive confession of a Christian. I mean, that's, that's where it begins. You, you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. What does that mean when we say, when we confess, Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, the word Lord, the New Testament word for that is kurios, and it means owner, ruler, or master. So here's what that means. When I say that Jesus Christ is my Lord, I'm saying He's my owner. He is my owner. I have been bought and paid for. This is, it's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. No, you're not. You're not your own. <laughs> you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, which they belong to God. Your body and your spirit belong to God. I, you've been bought with a price. 1 Peter says that we have been redeemed. With, with His blood, with His precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ is my Lord. He's my owner. He bought me. He redeemed me. He purchased me out of slavery to sin and death. And now I belong to Him by right of purchase. 
He bought me with a price. The price was his own precious blood. The blood as of a lamb unspotted, uh, unblemished and spotless. So he owns me. Secondly, to say that Jesus Christ is Lord, not only is he my owner, he's my master. That's what Lord means. Owner, ruler, master. He is my master. I am his doulos. That is to say, bondservant. I'm his slave. I am his slave. He bought me. I belong to him, and now I am his slave. I'm his servant. What do servants do? Servants serve. Slaves do the bidding of their master. That's what slaves do. I am his servant. I am his slave. He is my owner. He is my master. And now I live for him. So here's the implication. What does it mean to say Jesus Christ is Lord? It means my life is not about me. It's about him. In fact, it's not even my life. (laughs) It can't be about me. It's not my life to be about me, and it's not for me. It's about Him. I belong to Him. My life is not mine. It belongs to Him. And now I live for Him. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Did you get that? He died for all, that they who live, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's you. He died for you so that you would no longer live for yourself, but you live for Him who died and rose again on your behalf. Or in Galatians 2, Paul says it this way, I'm crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's not my life. It's not about me. I've been bought. I've been paid for. I belong to Him. And now I live for Him who died and rose again on my behalf. In other settings, we've talked about idolatry, American idols. We talked about the the idolatry of comfort. And boy, we Americans, we we like the God of comfort. We're all about being comfortable, aren't we? We can be honest here in church. I mean, we can be honest. We want to be comfortable. But comfort can become an idol. And you know, the unpardonable sin is making me uncomfortable. You know, preacher, you better not make me uncomfortable. I won't let that go. A church better not make me uncomfortable. I won't forgive it. Uh, or a business. A business better not make me uncomfortable. I'll take my business somewhere else. You just better never make me uncomfortable. And then there are the sister idols of comfort or of control and safety and security and these become idols for us where we will do anything pay any price as long as i'm going to be safe and secure and feel like i'm in control we've said we've gotten schooled in that this year what we would give up just to be safe and in control but i want to tell you if you think you're going to follow the lord jesus christ those are false gods Those are gods that will pull you away from following Jesus. Jesus said, you want to follow me? Love to have you. Come on, more the merrier. But now listen, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself. Well, so much for being comfortable. You're going to have to take up your cross. Cross is an instrument of death, shame, persecution. It's an execution. Take up your cross. Well, that doesn't sound very safe. Follow me. There goes control. So you're going to follow Jesus. Don't expect to be safe or in control or comfortable, but you'll be following Jesus. Jesus 
is Lord. Is that true for you? Is that your conviction? Jesus Christ is my Lord. I am His. I'm bought with a price. He's my owner, my ruler, my master. I'm His doulos, His servant, His slave. It's not my life. I don't live for myself. I live for Him. Two convictions. God is sovereign. Jesus is Lord. Here's number three. The Bible is true. The Bible is true. Here in Isaiah 40, look at verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. The Word of our God stands forever. We heard Paul say a couple weeks ago in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired. Theopneustos, God-breathed, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Bible is the Word of God. Do you believe that? Do you know it? Is that a conviction of your life? I believe... The Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. It, it is absolutely true without any mixture of error. It's absolutely authoritative in my life. And so my life, knowing and believing, owning, this is the Word of God, my life is going to be based on the Word of God. So my decisions, my values, my behaviors, my choices, my life is going to be patterned after, defined by the Word of God, the Bible. It's the ultimate authority in my life. I'm going to base my life on the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God. That means when God says something is right, it's right. Period. It's just right. When God says something is wrong, it's wrong. If He calls it sin, it's sin. If He says it's wicked, it's perverse, it's an abomination, well, it's wicked, it's perverse, it's an abomination. Doesn't matter what the culture says. Doesn't matter what our Supreme Court rules. Doesn't matter what the president thinks. Doesn't matter what my friends say. Doesn't matter how I feel. What matters is what God has said. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, transgressors stumble in them. When that's a conviction for you, that'll give you courage. In unsettling times and when the rules are being rewritten and changed every day and when the vocabulary is being thrown out the window... It'll, give you, it'll make you resolute. The Word of God is right. It also means this. If the Bible is true, then hell is real. And the Gospel is true. And Jesus saved sinners. And we have the good news of Jesus Christ. We have the light of the Gospel. And it's incumbent upon us. It's our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to take the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ to people who are walking about in darkness. And they need to hear the hope of the Gospel and that Jesus Christ loves them died for them, and wants to save them. That's our job. It's on us to do that. We need to tell people about Jesus Christ. The Bible is true. There's a conviction. Is that your conviction? Do you believe that? Do you own it? Can you say that that governs my life? The Bible is true. God is sovereign. Jesus is Lord. The Bible is true. Number four, heaven is home. Here's a conviction that encourages it puts courage in us it inspires us it makes us resolute heaven is home paul says in philippians 3 our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a savior the lord jesus christ our citizenship is in heaven in the language of hebrews 11 we are strangers and exiles on the earth we are strangers we are exiles we're pilgrims we're sojourners we are Aliens, we're just passing through. This world is not home. Our citizenship is in heaven. This world's not home. 
Now, when that is a conviction for you, when you believe, when you know heaven is my home, that's going to have a couple of implications for you. It changes a couple of things. One, it changes your view of money and possessions. When, when it's true for you, when you know heaven is home, this world's not home. I'm a stranger, alien, sojourner, pilgrim, passing through. That changes the way you view money and possessions. Now, I know you've stayed in a motel somewhere along the way. You've been in a motel or a cabin or a lodge somewhere, a beach house. When you move into a, a motel room, you don't start remodeling the place, do you? You don't start painting the walls. You don't start buying furniture. Why? It's a motel room. You're going to be there for a minute. You know, you're going to spend a night, two nights, maybe a week, and then we're gone. That's not home. It's a motel room. You don't try to make it home. Folks, this world, we're strangers, aliens, sojourners, pilgrims. We're passing through. This isn't home. Stop trying to make it home. This isn't heaven. Don't try to make it heaven. Jesus kind of helped us with this in Matthew 6, where he says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, where moth will eat it, and rust will destroy it, and thieves will steal it. Don't, don't lay up treasures on the earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Thieves can't steal that. Moths won't get to it. Rust won't eat it. Lay up treasures in heaven. It's an eternal treasure, and that's your home. It'll change your view of money and possessions when you understand this isn't home, this isn't heaven. I'm not going to try to make it heaven. I'm just passing through. It's like a motel room almost in a sense. We're just passing through. Not only will that conviction that heaven is home change your view of money and possessions, it'll change the way you see death as well. It'll change your view of death. Now, we've talked about this in recent weeks. Death, for, for a child of God, death doesn't have to be feared. Now, death is certain. We don't have to deny it. We don't have to live in denial. No, death is certain. The Bible, the Bible tells us it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, judgment. Uh, Joshua called... When he was about to die, he said, I'm going the way of all the earth. You know, death is going the way of all the earth. In Adam, all die. Everybody dies. Death is certain. The only uncertainty is, is when and how. <laughs> you don't know when you're going to die, and you're not sure how you're going to die. But you can pretty well settle on the fact you're going to die. The death rate is 100%. Everybody dies. But when you know heaven is home, that changes your view of death. I don't have to be afraid of dying. And, and, and here's why. One, we have to be ready. We have to be ready. Now that I know that I, I will die, I mean, short of the Lord's return, I will die. So I have to be ready. I don't know when, don't know how, but I'm going to die. So I need to be ready at all times on any given day. Any one of us could step into eternity on any day. You know, the, 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 there's that thousand ways to die, as they say. There are a thousand ways you and I could step into eternity. A car wreck, heart attack, stroke, whatever. Any one of us could step into eternity today. So you better be ready today. Be ready. How do you get ready? You have that faith relationship with Jesus Christ. You know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Have you been saved? Do you know Him? Has there been that time in your life when you've turned from your sin, put your faith and trust in Jesus, asking Him to come into your heart, forgive your sin, to save your soul, to be your Lord and Savior? That's how you get ready. You're not really ready to live till you're ready to die. When you're ready to die, oh, now we can talk about living when you're ready. You're ready when you know Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Not only do I need to be ready, I need to be resigned. 
Again, heaven is my home. That changes my view of death. I need to be ready. I could go home at any time, and I need to be resigned. Or I could say be realistic. I need to be realistic about death. Now, I'm not a soldier, never been a soldier, not a combat veteran, but I've spent a lot of time around soldiers over the last 26 years. And I've heard a number of combat veterans put it this way. When it's my time, it's my time. I mean, how do you wrap your mind around going into mortal combat? How, 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 do, you wrap your, how do you do that? Well, when there's a bullet with my name on it, I can't help that. You know, when it's my time, it's my time. There's, there's just a resignation, a realistic appraisal of the situation. And, and for a believer, that kind of brings us back to the sovereignty of God, doesn't it? My life is in God's hands. And when God decides it's my time, and then it's just God calling me home. My life is in God's hands. Heaven is my home. And when God says, it's time for you to come home, son, it's my time. And he's just bringing me home. Heaven, death for a believer, death is just going home. It's, it's a homecoming or home going. It's just going home. We heard Paul say in Philippians chapter 1, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How could you say dying is gain? We don't like dying. Dying is terrible. It scares us to death. Why, how could you say to, death, to die is gain? He tells us to depart and be with Christ is far better. Dying is gain. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain because to die is to depart and be with Christ. And that's far better. It is to depart and be with Christ. In 2 Timothy, we heard Paul say a couple of weeks ago on death row, my life is being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. The time of my departure. So there's two occasions where he uses that word to depart or departure to describe death. And that word departure is a loosing, to loose something, to, to unloose something. It's used to describe a ship being loosed from its moorings and preparing to set sail. It's going to leave. It's departing. Or a military encampment, breaking camp. I mean, they're, they're loosing things. They're unloosening things. They're going to back, pack it all up, and here they go. They are departing. For a believer, death is, is just a loosing we're getting loosed from this world and the constraints of this world, and we're just going home. And there's nothing scary about going home, is there? Unless you made your wife mad, then that can be a pretty scary going home if you made her mad. But other than that, it's not scary going home. That's a, that's a welcome thing. To depart and be with Christ is far better. That's a conviction that'll help you. Makes you resolute. Gives you resolve. No matter what happens, heaven is home. And when God decides, I'm going home, then I'm just going home. And that's a good thing. Here's the last conviction. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not alone, one, because God is with me. Let's break that down. God sees me. God knows me. And God cares about me. Jesus shows us this in Matthew 6, Luke chapter 12. God sees you. He knows who you are, knows where you are, knows what you're going through, knows all about it, and He cares about it. Jesus told us, your, your Father in heaven, He knows what you need before you ask Him. He knows. He's aware of the situation. He knows what you need before, before you even know what you need. He knows. Uh, Jesus told us, listen, a, a bird doesn't fall from the sky without the Father's notice, and you're a whole lot more important to Him than a bird. He knows. He knows. 
He sees. He cares. Cast all your cares on Him because He cares for you. The very hairs of your head are numbered. He sees. He knows. He cares. It also means this. He accompanies me. He sees me, knows me, and cares about me. Number two, He accompanies me. He is with me. Psalm 23. Don't you love the 23rd Psalm? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Sounds pretty scary. (laughs) Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death... I will fear no evil. Why? You tell me. Because thou art with me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because thou art with me. In Psalm 16, 8, the psalmist said this, I have set the Lord continually before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. We can paraphrase that. I'm going to be resolute. I'm going to be resolved. I'm going to be steady, bold, faithful, courageous. I'm going to be marked by a firm determination. Why? Because the Lord is with me. He's at my right hand. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be shaken. The Lord is with me. Hebrews 13.5 says, Be content with what you have, for He Himself has said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. He is with me. Here's the third thing, and the rest of my outline didn't make it on that page. I think maybe the secretary decided that was enough. Yeah, I'll just stop. But I'm not going to stop. So here's number three on your outline. Sorry, it's not on there. Number three... He equips me. He sees me, knows me, cares about me. Number two, He accompanies me. He's with me. And number three, He equips me. He enables me. God is with me and He enables me to face whatever I'm facing. Jesus told His disciples, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't worry about how or what you're to speak in your defense or what you're to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. In other words... The Holy Spirit will be with you and will empower you and enable you and equip you to do what you need to do and say what you need to say when you need to say it. Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations, baptize them, teach them, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's not just a happy little sentiment, I'll be with you. It's a promise of His empowerment and His enablement, His equipping. Go make disciples of all the nations. That's a big job. Make disciples of all the nations. I'm with you every step of the way to equip you, empower you, and enable you to do it, even to the end of the age. We heard Paul over in 2 Timothy. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. God's power will enable you, equip you to suffer for the gospel. And in 2 Timothy 2.1, He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There's that sustaining grace. God is with me to equip me and empower me. I I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He equips me. God is with me. I'm not alone because God is with me. I'm also not alone because the church is with me. And again, I'm sorry, it's not on the outline, but the church is with me. Have you ever heard it said the church is a business? I've heard that a number of times. The church is a business. Um, you know, we live in this consumer culture, and it's a capitalistic society and a free market economy and all that, but we are consumed with business and business models, and we have profits and losses, and we have margins, and we have markets, and, and we have uh, branding and, and, and consumers and customers and all the rest. And that terminology and those paradigms have completely infiltrated the church and our thinking in the church, and especially the preacher verse. And now pastors think they are CEOs, and, and we want to go out and get MBAs <laughs> so we can be better business people. And, and church planters are entrepreneurs and, and all the rest. But here's the thing. 
Nowhere does God ever describe the church as a business. That's, that's a foreign concept to the Word of God. Now, there are some things in the church that are business-like. We ought to handle money in a business-like fashion, and we need to do employment issues in a business-like fashion. So there are things that need to have a business aspect to it. But folks, the church is not a business. God does describe the church as a body. This is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. We are members of His body, and we are members of one another. And different members of the body serve different functions, but it's all His body, and He is the head. The church is a body. The Bible describes that the church is a house or a building or as a temple, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. And then the church is also described as a nation, as a priesthood, as a race. But overwhelmingly, the church is described as a family, in terms of family. He is our Heavenly Father. We have received the spirit of adoption as sons, whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we might be called the children of God, and such we are. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God. And Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren, and God the Father is our Father in heaven. We are family. I'm not alone because God is with me. I'm not alone because the church is with me and I'm with the church. Over in 1 Peter it says that you, you need to be sober. Get serious. Be vigilant. Better open your eyes. Your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. You ever watch those wildlife nature shows? You know, back in the day, it was the Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Y'all remember that? Okay, if you do, you're telling your age, because that's been gone a long, long time. You know, Marlon Perkins has been dead forever. <laughs> uh, but there's Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, or, you know, Steve Irwin and those shows, National Geographic, whatever. But you've seen the images where you have lions or tigers and cheaters out there. Cheaters. Cheetahs. Che those cheating cheaters. Uh, lions and tigers, things like that, predators chasing dinner, you know, antelope, deer, or whatever, things like this, these herd animals. And if you've seen those scenes, you, you've seen lunch, you know, is the animal that got away from the herd, a calf that got a little too far away from mama, or an injured animal, or an old animal that got separated from the herd, and now he's going to be easy pickings for the predators. The Bible tells us again and again, we need each other. We need the church. We need the accountability of the church. We need the encouragement of the church. We need the teaching and the correction of the church. There is safety in numbers. We need the church. We need the family of God. Your adversary is like a roaring lion. And when you, as a believer, when a Christian gets away from the herd, you're going to be easy pickings for the adversary. A roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. There's safety in numbers. There's safety in the church. Here's what that looks like. I'm with the church, and the church is with me historically. When you're going through some stuff, when you're hurting, when you're scared, when your heart is broken, you're tempted to think you're the first person who's ever gone through this. Nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody knows. Well, the truth is, you're not the first. And you're not the last. And you're not the only. And the reality is, is that God's people have been here, done that, for thousands of years. 
I'm just with the church, and the church is with me. Others have gone before. Others have been through this too. And God saw them through it. God will see me through it. I'm with the church. I'm not alone. And I'm with the church, and the church is with me contemporaneously as well. Not just historically, but contemporaneously. I'm not alone. You want to think, we tend to think, or Satan wants us to believe, I'm all alone and nobody knows and nobody cares. My heart is broken, I'm scared to death, my world is falling apart, nobody knows, nobody understands, nobody cares. But that's a satanic lie. And the truth is, the family of God, God knows, God cares, God sees, and God's people are with you. When you're in the church, when you're part of the family of God, the family knows, the family understands, and the family cares. I'm not alone. If we have learned anything in 2020, we should have learned how we need each other. With all the COVID lockdowns and isolation and all that, isolation is dangerous. It's not good for you. It's not good for the church. It's, it's, it's a satanic scheme. That's not God's plan. That's a satanic scheme. Evil people with malicious intent isolate their victims. It's a satanic strategy. God tells us, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. All the more, as you see the day approaching, we need the body of Christ. We're not alone. God is with me. The church is with me. And I'm with the church. Is that a conviction for you? I'm going to be a part of the family of God. I'm going to belong. I'm going to be enmeshed. I'm with the church, and the church is with me. Well, there's five convictions. I suspect they're beliefs for you. I mean, here you are on, on a rainy Sunday morning. You're in church. I, I, I suspect you agree with these things. You probably believe these things. But my question is, are these rock rib convictions for you? Th this is the kind of stuff that puts metal. I mean, I mean this, is, this is my life. God is sovereign. My life is in His hands. Jesus is Lord. I belong to Him. It's not my life. I live for Him. The Bible is true, every word of it. Heaven is home, and I'm not alone. When those are convictions, you'll have the courage of your convictions. You'll be resolute. When everybody else is scared, when everything else is shaking loose all around you, you won't be. You'll be resolved, steady, bold, faithful. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. You've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And God, we thank you for these truths and, and, and others that we didn't even talk about. But God, thank you for these three biblical truths that can make us resolute. In the scariest of times, in the most unsettled of circumstances, we can be resolved and steady, bold, faithful, and fearless. Because these things are true. I pray that you would seal this message to our hearts and that these would be the convictions that, that inform, guide, define, and control our lives. I pray for the one who's never been saved. Help him to see he needs Jesus Christ. Help her to understand she's a heartbeat away from eternity and she must be ready. That our lives are a vapor that appear for a little while and fade away. And on any given day, she could step into eternity without you. He, he could be lost without God, without hope. Lord, I pray that you would convict them of sin, bring them to the cross even now. Take charge of this time of decision, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.